welcome back to another episode. Today we have Charlie Walker with us. So welcome to the show, man. Oh, thanks very much. Thanks for having me here. Of course. Grateful to have you on. Uh, I'm super excited for this one. Um, so just to kick us off, can you tell us a little bit more about you and what you do? Sure. I'm uh, an adventurer or an adventure travel writer, I suppose. Um, so I spent the last uh, 12 or 13 years heading off to various uh, interesting, weird, wild and wonderful parts of the world, um, often by quite sort of physically challenging means. So I'll travel by foot or horse or canoe or kayak or bicycle or ski, whatever, really. Um, then I come back and I write about it and I give uh, speeches about it. And that's me amazing man um so what uh what were you doing like before this like what was the moment that led you to to do this because it seems like it it was something like kind of like a big jump like it's not a normal career path i guess you'd say so so yeah what was it like for you before uh this um well i came out of university studying english literature and um did a postgrad in journalism and I did a brief stint on a paper here in the UK, um, but it was during that uh, period of time that I decided to head off on some sort of large journey, which is something I'd wanted to do for quite a few years. I think I'd always been, in some sense, uh, both consciously and to some extent subconsciously, building up to like an epic journey. Um, so when I was 22, nearly 23, I um, set off on a bicycle, nothing special, an old bicycle I'd bought secondhand. Uh, from the UK, and I spent the following four and a half years cycling about 43,000 miles across um, Europe, Asia, and Africa. Uh, and that long journey just gave me such a kind of um, you know, breadth of experiences and, and just further stoked my curiosity. So when I came back, I, I didn't find myself working too long in a job that I didn't care for before I started um, you know, turning what I now do into my career. Awesome. Okay. So, so many questions with that. Okay. So on this first journey, was there any, was there ever moments where you like things got so rough or tough that you wanted to quit? And if so, what were some of those like worse moments? And then we'll go to the, to the better moments. Um, yeah. I mean, more, more of those than I can count really. <laughs> um, I guess the, the first particularly low period um, was about six six or seven months in um, when I was crossing the Tibetan plateau in midwinter and uh, the temperatures were, yeah, they were down to the minus thirties uh, Celsius. I, I, I don't know what that is, but minus forties oh, yeah. went to meet. So yeah. <laughs> uh, getting down to around about that kind of level. Um, and I wasn't particularly well equipped. I didn't have the right kind of gloves, the right kind of boots, the right kind of sleeping bag. You know, I, I was, I was just wearing lots and lots of sort of basic thin layers and uh, there were a number of occasions where I, you know, was was cold and fed up to the point of, no, nah, I'm over this. I, I want to get out of here. I got lost uh, in a blizzard one time where I you know, became genuinely convinced over the course of uh, a couple, well, an hour or so that I was going to die until I lucked out and stumbled upon some shelter. Um, so, yeah, the places where I most wanted to quit were usually the places where it was physically or mentally hardest and that was often in the middle of nowhere so be it up in in the tibetan mountains in midwinter or in the saharan desert in summer or you know in jungle during the monsoon and usually those places were the places where it was actually just logistically impossible to quit because i'd have to keep going for some time just to get to a point from where i could get out of there where i could extract should i still choose to 
and of course every time you you know you hit your lowest ebb a, a day or so later you realize that it's not all as bad as it was and hopefully you start to rebound no that's all so when um that moment before you found the shelter was were you like hallucinating or anything or was it kind of like were you up for days trying to get out of the situation or did you end up coming across it kind of quick you were just freezing your ass off basically yeah more or less the 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 last the latter um i i was just up heading towards a pass um up to about five ish thousand meters so i guess that would be 15 16 feet and um a, a blizzard just picked up incredibly quickly and within about 20 minutes the, the wind was too strong to kind of try putting up my tent if, I, if i'd taken it out it would have been probably ripped away from me or, or, or just shredded uh it was it wasn't like a, a strong you know storm tent it was a, it was a basic one man kind of lightweight tent actually i think when i got it it was the lightest tent in the world at well under a kilogram so it was not up to you know essentially arctic blizzard conditions and um that i lost the road the the kind of track that i was following buried over and this was really remote there, there were you know, a vehicle uh, would pass maybe every day or two or three. Sometimes there'd be several days where I wouldn't see anyone. Um, and before I really knew what was happening, I, I was just lost trudging through shin deep snow, pushing my bike with no idea, no idea what direction I was going in. And the, the sensation was just slowly creeping back from my fingertips and my feet were getting more and more numb. And the wind chill was just pushing the, 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 you know, the, the, the feeling, the temperature much, much lower. And I, I had nowhere to, shelter i couldn't put my tent up i didn't have a phone if i did it wouldn't have worked up there anyway and so i was just fairly convinced i was going to die um <laughs> oh my god yeah that's wild okay um well how about this other because i know this is the one clip i think from rogan that went pretty viral on youtube is you were in like a russian jail or something for a month or something like that is that is that what it, so yeah what happened there yeah that was earlier this year um oh, that think, was, okay yeah yeah, I've, I've, I've been through the Russian judicial system uh, a few times now, um, but not for a few years until recently. But I went out to Far East Russia, to Siberia, uh, an area called Yakutia, and I flew in just three days before the invasion of Ukraine. And obviously the world changed at that point, but I was distant enough from ukraine or even moscow to feel like it was all right you know there's probably scope for me to carry on doing what i was doing i was as close to you know alaska or vancouver as i was to kiev or ukraine uh so i so i carried on with this hike and the plan was to hike a few hundred miles along um frozen the surfaces of frozen rivers uh up to the north coast to the, the arctic coast um and then fly out from there to uh, from a little port city uh, port town and for two months, that, that's what I did. I spent two months walking along the rivers and along the frozen Arctic Ocean up at the north, along the coast. And I had a yeah, great experience. I met lots of interesting people. I learned a lot about the, the area, the culture, the local indigenous peoples. But throughout the journey, there was this sort of looming presence that only grew of the, the authorities. They knew I was there. They, they weren't particularly present in the area. These were maybe once a week or, or less, I would pass through a small village with you know, 300 people or so and, and no police. But the police were getting reports about where I was and I knew I was being tracked. And on arrival in Tixi, the port town at the end of my journey after 600 miles of hiking, 
um, they arrested me and took me to court under the charge of con uh, conducting journalism while traveling on a tourist visa and photographing military sites and asking provocative questions about Ukraine. Um, now, I wasn't there as a journalist. Um, I certainly wasn't photographing military sites. I was there as a travel writer to, to learn about, well, to, to have an experience for, for one. I wanted to, I suppose, pit myself against the elements. I was camping in temperatures down to almost minus 50 degrees Celsius. Um, and I wanted to learn about the people, the area, the history, the culture. I wasn't there with any sort of political agenda or any current affairs focus. But of course, as soon as the invasion happened, everyone I met, and I would go days without meeting people, but every time I did meet someone, pretty much the first or one of the first questions they would ask is, what do you think about the special operation, as it's termed in Russia, the war that isn't deemed a war? Mm -hmm. um, so I did have plenty of conversations about Ukraine, and I usually tried my best to be as um, diplomatic as possible. When they asked my opinion, I would say, oh, I don't know a great deal about it. I know there are different stories on the news here and on the news at home, and I don't know what to believe. Um, everyone was, of course, curious to know what the outsider, what the foreigner knew because, or th thought, because they, they were aware that there are these different narratives, what they believed. I think varied quite a lot on a case by case basis, regardless of whether or not they would actually speak out about that. Um, so I was put put through the court. Um, they, <laughs> the police uh, came to came to the, the apartment I'd rented for just for a few days um, and said, "What well, you need to come down to the police station for registration." And so I went on down, and very sort of slowly over the course of a couple of hours, it became clear that I wasn't allowed to leave, and this was more than just registration. And then they gave me these allegations and um, many, the, the process, Russian police process is all really boring and thorough and bureaucratic. And after about five hours, they finally took me to court, which convened at 9.30 PM. So obviously it was sort of rushed through. Mm. Um, they didn't, they didn't offer me a lawyer or anything. Um, there was a translator, but this was a, a, a kindly English teacher, um, a, a local mother who, by the end of five hours was fed up and no longer had any desire to be there. So she was understandably not, you know, not that into it and was partially translating things. So the, the judge would give a long, you know, read off a paragraph of, you know, legal text and she would give me, you know, half a dozen words as a, as a translation. Um, at the end of that trial, uh, they found me guilty of, of the aforementioned uh, charges. But this is um, an administrative trial or an administrative trend, uh, offense. So they're not trying me criminally. They're just saying that I, um, I uh, broke the terms of my visa and I, was, I had to pay a small fine, about 80 US dollars, and would be deported and can't come back to Russia for five years. But they led me to believe that they would fly me back down to the regional capital from where I would book a flight and leave the country. My initial homeward flight had been cancelled because it was with a Russian airline and um, the UK had banned all Russian airlines from operating in, in British airspace and British mm -hmm. airports. Uh, so I, I went back to the apartment and they dropped, well, they dropped me off back at the apartment. But then about 20 minutes, they came back and said, right, pack all your things up. And they watched me pack everything up and they drove me to, back to the police station and then fingerprinted me and put me in a cell for the night, which didn't, I mean, it wasn't pleasant. I was in a concrete cell with the light on through the night and it was minus you know, 28 degrees outside and it was 
a bit warmer than that inside, but it, yeah, it wasn't, but it wasn't terrible. I was fine. Yeah. And I still thought this is just part of their process. And the next day they took me to the airport. We got on a flight, me and a, a bailiff, a uniformed bailiff sort of guard escorting me, flew me down to Yakutsk, the regional capital, which is where I'd flown into in the first place. And um, quite quickly, they I realized that it wasn't going to be quite as straightforward because they handed me over to another armed, uh, sorry, uniformed bailiff who took me to a detention center and I was locked up. Um, and I ended up spending four weeks there, never quite knowing when they would release me. Uh, they said, yeah, we'll deport you eventually, but we don't know when. It takes a while. But the longer I was there, the more chance it felt there would be that they would um, retry me. The, the three offences that they hooked me with, uh, journalism, asking about Ukraine and photographing military sites. Well, the, the final one, it could be reframed as espionage. Um, they never produced any photos to, to back up this assertion. But uh, Tixi, where I finished the journey, has for the last five or so years been one of the hubs of Russia's northern defence strategy. So not in the town itself, outside the town, near to the airport there is a, a sort of military base where they got surface to air missiles um and i wasn't aware of this at the time i've learned this subsequently um but they it used to be a classified area and they declassified it just last year so i i don't really know why they did that at this crucial juncture given that they're investing you know many many billions of rubles into the military infrastructure of this point but the other two things that that journalism um, accusation and the asking questions about Ukraine very much made out that I was a journalist looking to spread uh, lies or fake news about the situation in Ukraine, which the Russian government, the Kremlin, has a very particular line or narrative of propaganda. So anyone straying from that can fall foul of a law they introduced just in March after I arrived in the country. Uh, which has a sentence of up to 15 years for exactly that, for sort of um, uh, publishing or spreading, quote unquote, fake news that strays from their their line of uh, propaganda. So every day uh, of that month, I was there thinking, you know, any minute now, they're going to just take me back to court. Uh, I, I lodged and I managed to hire um, a local uh lawyer to launch an appeal but my lodge an appeal rather but my appeal was immediately rejected and after one week they dragged me on uh state tv uh yeah they, without warning i just was summoned to the cell door i had to put my hands through the hatch they cuffed me marched me downstairs put me down uh plunked me down on a chair in a room in front of a rolling camera with a light shining at me and a microphone thrust in my face and then a local journalist started just asking me questions which were either fed to them by the police or they'd just been given the police report for what I was supposedly guilty of and said, why are you doing this? Why do you hate Russia? What do you think about Ukraine? Why did you photograph military sites? So it really felt like they were paving the way or preparing the court of public opinion for a, you know, a subsequent trial. And it would have been very convenient for Russia to have uh, another British citizen in a prison somewhere that could be used as a you know a trade somewhere further down the line potentially for a russian pow from ukraine so actually uh, they did eventually after a month release me and i was i was able to get back home but with hindsight i'm amazed they did that and if you take their own sort of uh if you judge them by their own standards they were kind of dumb to do that frankly i think i got really truly lucky um yeah. They, they were, yeah, and I, I think being quite so far from 
from Moscow and from Ukraine probably did pay work in my favor in that sense. Wow, man, that would have been, I'm, I'm assuming when you were, like you were saying, is you didn't know exactly what was going to happen, but you had, you know, thoughts of what could happen. So I'm assuming those 30 days were like terrifying. I would imagine. Were, were you pretty scared? <laughs> like, I, like knowing that 15 years could, I mean, even if that was in the U S 15 years in prison is 15 years. I don't know. That's nuts, man. I would yeah. It, I mean, it, it was, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, it was, it, it wasn't hard time. If that makes sense. I wasn't surrounded by criminals. I was yeah. uh, for two weeks sharing a cell with uh, two other men, foreigners awaiting deportation. And then for two weeks after that by myself. Um, so, and, and I, so I wasn't with a general criminal population. There wasn't the chance of uh, violence, the guards, although they, would sort of shout you're a spy at me and they were pretty unpleasant and sort of I guess in their own probably to themselves funny way were trying to be intimidating but I wasn't allowed outside um, I was in the cell around the clock meals were just put through a hatch there were two cameras in the ceiling the lights are on at night um, so it was just quite it, it wasn't awful but it yeah, just the, yeah, the sort of the, the atmosphere of menace was there to exacerbate the the concerns I had about uh, potentially being um, you know put through a more serious trial and put into a a more uh, you know a more punishing uh, part of the penal system. Got it. And then you said too, and it's up to you. You want to go into detail on them, but you said you've been in trouble, uh, whether it was your fault or not necessarily, but uh, prior times with Russia too. So is it just kind of like a thing in Russia? Or is this like an ongoing thing in other places? If you are, if you go to Russia and go to off the beaten track places, mm. by which I don't necessarily mean just a village a uh, hundred kilometers away from Moscow, where you won't so usually get a tourist, but I mean the remote places, the vast tracts, the mountains, the sort of the tundra. Um, they don't like foreigners being in these places, and Russia since. Since Perestroika, Russia slowly liberalized throughout the 90s and probably reached its sort of zenith of liberalization early in this century. And mm. yeah, Putin came in at the start of the century. And as soon as he kind of fought off some of his opposition and started to clamp down and seize power, he slowly started turning the clock back with regards to what uh, liberties could be taken in Russia, I suppose. And that's massively accelerated this year to the point where the freedoms political personal uh, etc in russia are back to pre-perestroika back to the soviet times mm. but even uh, five years ago for instance in 2017 i spent uh, about six months in russia skiing um for about three months down the ural mountains and then kayaking for a for another couple of months or so um down a river um uh through siberia on this journey myself and the partner i did that expedition with the expedition partner we got in trouble in the ural mountains they arrested us uh, on arrival in some small town for resupply this is up in the arctic just a lot further west than where i was this year and this time they we, we had business visas because back then the longest tourist visa you could get was 30 days and we needed much longer mm. and back then they uh took us to court for con committing tourism while on a business visa um so you can never yeah you, know, you can never win really um 
now they get 90 day now they well briefly they were giving 90 day tourist visas uh so i was able to get there this year with a tourist visa and thinking that i had the right type of visa although it turns out that they said i should have had a journalist visa although if i had a journalist if i'd gone there with a journalist visa this year i'm sure they would have found a reason to to lock me up anyway um so they took me to court that time and then another time was frankly my fault Uh, i was in georgia and i completely accidentally unknowingly strayed across the border i crossed a river a a shallow river it was only 10 20 centimeters deep across the river and accidentally crossed into a tiny little corner of south ossetia which is a sort of breakaway republic much like the donbass or or donetsk and lugansk have become in eastern ukraine uh south ossetia was annexed by russia in 2008 seven i forget which 2008 i think um in a short five-day war in which russia seized two parts of georgia and it was it was a very you know bloody conflict um villages were burned out but in five days it was taken and i accidentally crossed into a tiny little corner a little sort of promontory of land a little finger that i just crossed the corner of and the minute i crossed the river i was arrested and then put through the court system there um i also got arrested by speedboats while kayaking down this river because the river briefly formed the border of russia and kazakhstan and although i stayed the river was four or five hundred yards wide by this point and although i stayed right up against the russian border um that that was deemed to be a border infraction um and so they they uh, they didn't take me to court that time they just sort of put me through their system and gave me a fine so you, you get you get a slap wrist for doing anything unusual in russia and they've got enough rules in place and the will to find a way to uh to get you to you know to get you on one of those laws that they always will find a way and once you go to court uh the the i think it's something like 99 point something 99.3 or whatever percent of cases that go to trial in russia end in a guilty verdict so once you go to court it's a foregone conclusion committing tourism man that is uh i didn't even know that was possible <laughs> that's awesome <laughs> I've been, do- I've been doing that all my life. I just didn't know it was a crime. Yeah, dude, you should be, you should have many life terms, man. <laughs> um, that's, that's wild. Um, so I think one of the things I read when I was doing some research on you is you like to find like, like kind of off the beaten path communities, like the smaller communities. So you, you don't necessarily go to the touristy spots when you visit these places, but you like to find, I don't want to say like the real people, but like, you know, the people that are in the small communities of that area. Um, so uh, a couple questions on that is what were some of the most like what were some of the biggest culture shocks like what areas and like maybe some stories of like what occurred uh, when you uh, did that? Um, well, I suppose from a culture shock perspective, a couple of years ago, I was back out in Papua New Guinea, um, which is a which is a fascinating country in the middle of an election at the moment so things are going especially wild because the levels of violence and corruption and political violence and political corruption are are, are very very high um but i was out there sort of doing a bit of research into policing in some of the remote areas of the highlands um the previous year i'd been on a hike through a, through a very remote area of the highlands that had taken me uh, something like a 10-day walk to get there from the nearest road perhaps a little longer um and that had included crossing a an unbridged river of quite sort of punchy rapids. So it's it's not easy to get to this place. There is a small grass airstrip in this community. 
Um, but when I was crossing the river, I, I met these guys down by the river who warned me that because uh, I'd been kayaking down the river a little bit. I had an inflatable pack raft and they told they warned me, get off the river at this point and head back into the mountains because just around the corner, the river um, funnels into a sort of cliff walled canyon and the entire river then goes underwater, underground, sorry, for a best part of a mile. I, I've later seen this on satellite maps. The, the whole river just disappears for a mile in the middle of the jungle in the mountains. And had I gone around that corner, then I probably would have got swept into that. And I shouldn't think I'd be here talking to you today, Tyler. <laughs> but um, these guys, I spent the night in this, these guys sort of camp on the side of the river and it wasn't their village. It was an encampment where they go to my, uh, to pan for gold because about a hundred miles upstream uh, near the source of this river, there is a huge gold mine um, uh, used to be an internationally owned gold mine. I believe now I think it's state owned, um, but all the tailings, uh, all, every, all the waste from the mine is just dumped in the river, which has caused a huge environmental harm. Um, but along with that little bits of gold dust, little specks wash their way down and people go down and pan for gold, uh, you know, with sort of sieves essentially much like they would in, in the Yukon in 1870 or something. Uh but these guys said that they were building a bridge to cross the river. And I saw laid out in the jungle this very impressive vine bridge that was all built, ready to string across the river. And another group on the other side would sort of catch the, I think they were planning to fire a very thin thread with an arrow across the river. And then with that thread, they could pull across a slightly thicker uh, string and then a slightly thicker vine until eventually they had something strong enough to haul this whole great hanging uh, vine bridge across the river. And I said, well, great that you're building a, a bridge. You know, that'll probably open up a lot of you know trade or communication with the tribe on the other side. And they said, oh, we actually used to have a bridge, but it got cut down in some fighting recently. And I asked what had happened. And they said, oh, a month ago, uh, we got into a fight with the people on the other side. Someone stole someone's pig. Um, pigs are almost the currency in the Highlands. They're the ultimate status symbol. They're how you settle disputes and buy brides and all sorts. Um, they're rarely eaten. They're too valuable. Only people in the big cities where the pigs get taken to market usually seem to be able to eat pigs, except on ceremonies. Yeah. Uh, anyway, in the fighting one of the one of the guys I was talking to said, "Yeah, there, there was a there was a fighting. And there was a bad man there, and I cut off his hand." Um, just with a machete he made the sort of chop uh, gesture and I thought oh well you know that's quite intense and I left the next day and I carried on walking and I got to this little village up about a 12 hour walk away up in the in the mountains and I spent the night sleeping in the policeman's station this hut really and there was one policeman covering a huge swathe of jungle with villages scattered amongst it and he's got this impossible job of trying to police this totally wild area with no infrastructure, no one else to help him. Um, and he's the only way he can get around is by walking. And he can't be, he can't have a weapon because if he does, it'll just get stolen straight away. So he's just got a bush knife, a machete, like everyone else has. And those are used just for clearing paths as you walk down these footpaths through the through the jungle, the rainforest. Um, so he he told me. Uh, he, said, he said to me, oh, you came up from the river. Um, I was down there last month. I said, oh, right, what happened? He said, oh, well, there was this fight. And I had to go down and chop down the bridge because the two guys, two sides of the river were fighting. He said, someone cut off someone's hand. So, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm looking for that man. And I was in this slightly awkward position. And I said, oh, I don't really know anything about that. And I, you know, I didn't want to interfere. It wasn't my place. But that left this idea in my head that there must be other policemen out there in the Highlands in similarly difficult situations. So about a year later, I went back just before COVID broke. And I went to this district where there was one policeman 
covering an area with about 80,000 people. And he's the only one. And there is, it's not as remote. There is some infrastructure. There are roads. He had a vehicle. He, he couldn't, he wasn't armed because every time he had been issued a gun from the sort of local, you know, a uh, few towns away, the local department, uh, it had been stolen straight away. And he took me to his, his patch, his, his uh, station. And we had to pay a bribe at a checkpoint on the way. And this was just tribal men with, with AKs and bare feet with their impromptu roadblock they had made that the policeman has to pay a fight a bribe to get into his patch so that should give some sense of the lawlessness but yeah. this uh to go to a long way around to bring it back to your question this policeman um namba uh, is his name he showed me his incident report book his log book and i've never seen anything quite like it, it you know I, I turned to a random page and it said something like monday october 12th uh girl gang raped by five men in the coffee gardens uh, search underway for three of the five men. Tuesday, man uh, beheads son with axe, brackets, suspected cannibal. Wednesday, uh, man beats wife almost to death, uh, claims, um, actually, I don't think that was in this village, but I saw somewhere someone had nearly beaten their wife to death and then claimed that she was a sorceress or a witch doctor and had forced him to do it or someone else had bewitched him. It was just these crazy incidents. And they were all condensed into just one or two weeks in this book. And every single day, something appalling happened. Um, and this guy was largely helpless to do anything about it. Um, so the, the way that most justice is meted out out there is through uh, tribal courts. So the village elders will gather and they've had a kind of, you know, one day of training from the government years earlier to sort of give it the, the veneer, I suppose, of a legitimate judicial system. Uh, and they sit down and they sort of, in, in their own tribal village justice way, they hear all sides of the argument and a decision is made. But it's just based on who's more compelling, compelling or convincing or... It's it's run, I suppose, like a court. People come and give witness or whatever, but it is in public with everyone, court of public opinion, and then a verdict is given and a, there are no punishments. There's no corporal punishment and people aren't locked up. They just have to negotiate, oh, killed that man's daughters. Uh, and so he says that he will settle for 130 pigs as a as a you know, price to to settle the 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 blood feud essentially so yeah Papua New Guinea has been one of the more fascinating and eye-opening places that I've been uh with regards to uh, uh relatively unique rem uh, remote-ish cultures yeah that sounds like it man that is wild um I'm speechless on that <laughs> yeah that's crazy um so what is uh just curious uh like what what's your family like 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 mom dad like uh significant like what do they think about it like was your mom scared before you went on your first adventure like what's that whole scenario like um i think i mean i'm one of four children um oh. which probably has probably made things easier for parents because there's other children if i was the only child then i suppose there's arguably yeah. more <laughs> socially or emotionally invested in this one individual but when i first went away I'm sure both my parents were, were extremely worried, but I was away for such a long time, for four years, more than. Um, and I'd been on, I'd been backpacking beforehand, so they'd got used to me going away for a few months at a time. Um, I don't think it was that worrying, particularly, like, not 
consistently at least however over the years i've gone away and then come back and they've either heard me talk about or they've read in my books or articles about times that things have got pretty hairy and so that probably hasn't helped but simultaneously dad's no longer around but mum has i think over the last few years got better at sort of (laughs) putting it out of mind while i'm away and accepting that this is what i do and that i am myself getting better at taking calculated risks and hopefully getting a bit more sensible um things did nearly you know go a bit bad earlier this year in russia although while they were uh, while i was in the prison my mum wasn't entirely in the loop um she knew i wasn't exactly free but we let her know that i had we, i think we when i say we i had very little access to my phone so my partner my girlfriend um, allowed her to believe that I was uh, in a sort of uh, a government hotel and didn't have access to my phone, but would be heading home soon, something like that. Um, yeah. So, yeah, from a family dynamic, I probably do cause quite a lot of stress, but I, I try <laughs> to mitigate it as best I can. And are your um, so I don't know if you said three brothers or just three siblings, but are your other three siblings, are they anything like you or like, have they ever gone on any of these trips with you? No, we're, we're all completely different. Uh, my brother works in finance in Hong Kong. My sister is a cellist in Scotland. Uh, my little sister is a uh, travel agent. She lives close to me in London, um, but she works in a slightly, slightly higher end type of travel. Um, not so much the kind of um, rough adventure thing yeah. that I do. And then what about, um, so, so that was before, um, well, I don't know how long you've been with your girlfriend, but with your girlfriend, does she have any interest in going with you or is she just kind of like, oh, this is kind of like uh, par for the course of being with Charlie. Like I got to let him go for uh, six months to a year here and there. Well, she she makes um, documentaries and that's taken her to Iraq and Syria and, you know, all sorts of interesting places. Um, so it's not just me doing this sort of thing. Um, we have discussed perhaps making a documentary together at some point, but have not got around to it yet. So who knows, maybe in the future. That would be cool. All right. So, okay. That's like a perfect match then. Um, hmm, I don't know why I'm just curious. How did you guys not, not to make this a romantic podcast, but how did you guys meet? I'm just curious. Uh, we met through a friend um, and just started rock climbing together. We do quite a lot of that. Um, and uh, yeah, there's, there's a, it's a fairly straightforward story. Okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. I didn't know if it was something like she was at a documentary and then you were traveling and then you were like, Oh my God, did you see all the people with the pigs down there? <laughs> 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 no, we just met in London. I'm afraid. Gotcha. Um, so then uh, my, actually I, I want to ask you about your books now. So my main background um, is actually helping people with books and stuff. So I'm curious, like, and a lot of our listeners are authors or people that want to be authors. So what is your process? So like you'll go on an adventure, you'll come back and then do you have like a kind of writing process or what does that look like from start to finish for, for each, you have two books, right? Yeah. I've, I've written just two so far. I'm just starting work on my, on my third. Um, for me, both have been a little bit different. The first one, I, I sort of tinkered with the first few chapters for quite a while over the course of a few years. Um, it was the first book I was struggling to find time to get down and do it. But then I um, managed to arrange 
six weeks where I had nothing else. And I thought I'll get out of the country. I went to Kenya, um, stayed with a friend in Nairobi and just put my head down and wrote, um, every day, uh, every weekday, just like a working day from nine till five or eight till five, I think. Um, and by the end of six weeks, I had a first draft, which I then just started finessing, just running through it again and again with the second book. It was slightly different because I was, uh, I wasn't able to find some huge chunk of time to go away. So I took two weeks, I went to uh, Greece and managed to sort of, um, <laughs> uh, cheekily, uh, use borrow someone's room for a, for a couple of weeks um and got about perhaps 30,000 40,000 words under my belt uh, and I, first draft i think just get it down just write 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 and you can shape it you can finesse later um a lot of people talk about uh, writer's block and um i've not i don't think i've experienced that but i also think fiction and non-fiction are quite different um so far i've been writing books that are non-fiction and they're writing uh first person narrative where the events have happened the story's there i've just got to find a hopefully engaging and gripping way to relate it so you can get something down if the chapter you've worked on for the last couple of days um isn't perfect you can rewrite or you can reshape it remold it later but the best thing i think is just to get something down um you know uh, sculpture you start with some huge block of marble and you just yeah, yeah if you're sculpting a duck um or whistling a duck you want to whistle away everything that doesn't look like a duck and i'm sure you've got the image in your head of what you want this book or this writing project to be but you've got to give yourself some huge chunk of marble or lump of clay from which to to you know slowly form the the shape that you want so i think being um being quite unfussy about your first draft is really key uh, and i found with regards to making nice prose it helps to read your book out loud to yourself um once you've when you're working on a chapter go through each page and read it out loud and see how this how it sounds uh how the, the flow the rhythm of it sounds when read out loud because although that won't necessarily be a huge well i think when we read books we do have essentially of our head reading out those words and if if it's clunky if it's too staccato if it's hard to get through a sentence or if the, the the rhythm the shape of the sentence kind of leads you up to a point and then suddenly it doesn't you know you, you want to have those those fluent cadences those rhythms um but also more so if, if the book is going to go out on audiobook and i think that my books have been probably listened to on audiobook roughly as much as they have been uh read uh, in paperback or hardback um so it's a good process to to really whistle it down and, and make sure it sounds good as well as reads well for sure yeah i think i'm blanking on his name right now which is embarrassing but it's one of the most famous writers out there but he says you should uh basically write as you speak right and um and, and i think you're right there is kind of that voice in your head when you read and also after i can the advice you gave, I think is perfect because the first draft, you just want to get it out of your head. It can be a mess. Doesn't really matter. Just get everything out of your head and then you can organize from there. And then when you read it, something that you may have thought sounded good uh, that you were writing when you read out loud sounds very abnormal sometimes. <laughs> so it's like a very important process. Um, and then did you have like, I didn't uh, see, I, I just didn't check, but did you have like a publisher 
uh, or did you self-publish these? Uh, my first two books I self-published. The next one I'll be going through a publisher. Um, I think it's so it's quite it's quite competitive to get a, a first book out there in the travel sphere. Um, more so, I, I'd been in discussion with a publisher, but uh, they were they were adamant that I made this four year journey one book, and I strongly felt that such a huge amount of my life in which so much had happened, I didn't want to be one kind of medium to long book. I wanted to be two books that aren't excruciatingly long. Um, so I took a bit of a leap of faith on that and just got going and got it out there. And I'm really glad I did. Um, but there's there's definitely different ways to do it. And I'm interested and looking forward to, to trying it the, the more traditional route this time around. For sure. So then on your first two, did you have an editor for those? On the- um, I, I, I self-edited. I, uh, I got a proofreader for each one to give it a once-over. Um, I am fairly decent at editing text at copy. Um, it's harder to have a sort of plot editor you know looking at the more the narrative shape of things and, and that's i suppose with hindsight one thing that it would have been better to have but uh you can get a bit bogged down and there's costs involved so i decided to, to back myself and, and i'm sure if i gave those books another pass over now i'm i could make plenty of improvements as could other people but i'm pretty happy with them yeah no gotcha that's awesome yeah i think that exactly how you've done it i think is amazing because now I mean, look, you've gotten some big exposure. The first two books have done well. So now a traditional publisher for your third book, now is the time when they would actually like be very interested, right? Like it's one thing, obviously your story is incredible, but if you can prove to a traditional publisher that you've already had success with two books, I mean, that whatever deal you end up getting is going to be better than not having the success of the previous two books. So I think uh, whether you meant to do it or not, I think it, it's kind of perfectly uh, panned out for you. So that's awesome. Um, so, yeah, man, I want to kind of leave it to you. If there's anything else you want to share that we didn't, I mean, I know you have probably, you know, stories we could talk for multiple days on. <laughs> we could uh, do this in a Russian uh, area for a month straight or something. <laughs> um, but yeah, I want to leave it to you for that. And then also uh, where can people stay in touch like uh, website, books, uh, social media, uh, the floor is yours. Sure. Well, um, I, I, there's, there's nothing sort of particularly pressing that I'm desperate to get out there into the world. So I'm um, happy to answer any further questions. But the uh, places to find what I'm doing are um, my, my handle on uh, Instagram and Twitter uh, is at CW Explore, Charlie Walker Explore, CW. Um, and I'm also on Facebook, the same CW Explore. My website is CWExplore.com. Um, my books can be found on my website, on Amazon, on Audible, on kindle um so uh check them out and uh instagram is probably the place where i'm most active uh, i post most with um you know upcoming projects so that's probably the first uh, point port of call perfect man thank you again for coming on i appreciate it my pleasure thanks for having me